0: Welcome to The Herd, and thanks for listening. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating, and follow, and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herd Mates and I have the pleasure today to be joined by Kit Farrow. Um, and he's coming from balmy eastern Colorado, about as far east as you can go in Colorado, as I recall.
1: That's last correct. Last exit on the interstate, is that right? We're, we're, uh, 28 miles south of the last exit on the interstate in uh, Colorado.
0: Where the wind rarely stops blowing.
1: That's right.
0: And what's inter- One of the interesting things in today's episode is I call this the "Meet Your Herdmates" Sodcast. And uh, the first time I heard Kid, he was giving a herd quitter um, seminar. I think that was in northeastern Nebraska in 2011. So that goes back a little ways. Ten years.
1: Hmm.
0: Um, so you have an aged a bit. Oh, thank you, you sweet talker. Um, what what do you mean by herd quitter?
1: Uh, you know, I, I, I think um, the herd quitter has several different ways to look at it. Um, the way I've looked at it is, we started our business in 1985. We came back to the ranch and uh, and. I, I looked around and my, my first goal was to show everybody else how smart I was. And well, that lasted about six months. And so then I started looking at what everybody was doing because I thought, you know, I'll just as well learn from everybody else. And before I knew it, I thought, you know, these guys, that's all they're doing. They're just doing what everybody else is doing. And it doesn't make sense to me. I had a few, a few people that were, uh, big in my life as far as helping me to see the truth when i needed to see the truth so you know back in that time while everybody else was running as hard as they could this way they said stop and let's think about this you know maybe we don't want to just jump in with the herd and start running what if the whole herd falls over the cliff you go with it so we stopped and we said you know we're going to take a different approach at that time in in my part of agriculture the, the goal was to produce as many pounds per animal as we could. And that kind of makes sense. But really and truly, ranchers are in the solar business. We take solar energy, we produce grass, and the grass feeds our cattle. And so we're, we're, we have acres and acres of solar collectors out there, which are the, the plants. And I thought, and the friends I was with said, you know, we don't want to produce... More pounds per cow, we want to produce more pounds per acre because this is a solar collector. If we can make that solar collector better and more efficient, if we can utilize what it produces, you know, now we're increasing pounds per acre. And the more we thought about that, we thought, you know, this is so obvious and so much more profitable than incre- increasing pounds per cow. And so we, th- that's, that's where we pretty much broke the herd, went away from the herd, uh, and have been that way for the last 35 years. Uh, actually, yeah, about 35 years. But, and I came up with the herd clear concept in 2008. And what I was thinking then is, you know, this is what we are. This is what I am. You know, our organization grew from almost nothing back in 1985. Uh, until we were a, a, a major business in the livestock industry by the year 2000. And I said, you know, we did everything we did by going away from what everybody else is doing. So I, I, I said to myself, well, I'm a herd quitter. <laughs> and our organization includes a lot of other people, a lot of other families. And I shared that concept with my people. I said, you know, we're herd quitters. And... Every one of them, I don't think any of them thought that was a good idea at that time. And and the reason is, is, as ranchers, as cattlemen, every now and then we gather up the cow herd and we take them in to process them or to take the babies off their mothers or to vaccinate the calves or whatever. And as we're gathering up the cows, there's always one cow that's out here on the outside edges with her calf. She knows something's up. She doesn't want to be a part of this herd. And she takes off running as hard as she can, and her calf's keeping right up with her. So we got to go out and bring her back. And we just keep doing that. That's a herd-quitter cow. And she's very frustrating because it takes you twice as long to do anything because you're always chasing that cow. Mm -hmm. But I thought about it, and out of those, let's say there's 200 head of cows out there, the only cow that's thinking for herself is that herd-quitter. The rest of them are just following the herd. They don't know. Once ahead of them, they don't care. But that, you know, the more I thought about it, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm proud to be a hurt quitter. And everybody else in our organization is that way too. And I, as I look back, what history I do know, uh, you know, throughout history, those who broke away, who were contrarians, hurt quitters, who did something different, they made history. Nobody ever made history by doing what everybody else is doing. You know, the best way to manage any business in the world is not by doing what everybody else is doing. It's by seeing something that nobody else is doing and going that way or doing that. So, mm-hmm. you know, to me, it's it's a huge factor. Uh, and I don't care what business you're in. If you're in a business, you can't be doing everything the same as everybody else. Or you're just average. Mm-hmm. The only way to get ahead is to is to be different. Yeah. And
0: now you said you and Deanna went back to the ranch. So where had you been? Did you grow up there initially and leave and come back or what?
1: OK, I, I'll back up even further than that. My dad was born and raised in Denver. He was a city kid, always wanted to be a cowboy. My mom was born and raised in this area where we're at now, Eastern Colorado. They met in college. And uh, during the dust storms, drought and dust storms of the 1950s, they moved out here and rented a small place. And I, you know, the reason I bring that up is because Dad, because he was a city kid, he was not the th- second, third, fourth generation rancher. He did not see things the same as everybody else. He always asked questions that nobody else a- a- asked. You know, why do we do it this way? And that just shocks everybody else, you know. They don't want to. They don't want to be confronted with a question that uh, they can't really tell you. You know, we we just keep cutting off this much of the roast so it fits in the because grandma had to do that to fit in the roaster pan, so to speak. You know, it, it becomes a, a tradition that makes no sense. But in anyway, I grew up here. My dad had an off farm job, small small cow herd, and. Uh, well after I graduated from college, I spent a lot of my time rodeoing. I mean, I was a professional rodeo cowboy, which there's a really poor living there. But uh, I did that. I worked at a feedlot. I, uh, we, we got a job in town. I uh, opened a solar business back in 1980 in, in a retail store. And that gave me kind of a business mindset. But we did not come back to this type of lifestyle until 1985, after being away from it for 15 years. And so we're in the same general area that I grew up, uh, close but not the exact same place. And uh, I guess I hope that answered that question.
0: Absolutely. Um, so you've, I, 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 I'll give you the chance to, to talk about what some people see as the oxymoron of ranching. Um, That you wanted, you you said in one presentation that you were talking to someone and you were going to talk about um, ranching profitably. And their response was, isn't that an oxymoron?
1: I think that happened when I was going through customs. Uh, You've done a (laughs) lot of speaking engagements, but I was going through customs in Canada and they said, "What are you up here for?" I said, "I have a speaking engagement." They said, "What about?" I said, "Profitable ranching." They said, "Isn't that an oxymoron?" And uh, you know, that's been a joke for a long time. Uh, you know, truth be known, ranching is a break-even business. You know, we make money half the five years out of ten, we lose money five years out of ten. We're basically break even, breaking even. We're smart enough to know that when we make pretty good money. We don't spend it all on new pickups. We put some in the bank for those bad years. But nobody's making a decent living in this business. No, I'll take that back. Most people are not making a decent living in this business. There are some that are making a really, really, really good living in this business and are building up wealth. And they're the herd quitters. I mean, they, as long as you're doing what all your neighbors are doing, you're breaking even.
0: As you said, the average is not something you want to aspire to. No. Um, you. So you you've mentioned industry. You mentioned business already. So there's a tie there that um, a lot of. It's my perception, and correct me if I'm wrong. It's my perception that a lot of people within the beef cattle business and I'll come back to that because there's many businesses within the beef industry and they look very different and they're spread around. But at, certainly in at the cow-calf level of the industry, it seems to me like a lot of that is lifestyle, not necessarily business. It's, what would your reaction to that observation
1: be? I think that has to be the truth. Uh, you know, why else would we stick around and break even, you know, how many business can you think of, you know, think about the motel in town or the restaurant in town or whatever business, the tire dealership or the car dealership. How long are those businesses going to be in business if they're breaking even?
0: Or not making money. Yeah.
1: Not, not making any money, just breaking even, you know, a little bit here and a little bit less there, but, uh. Ranching, we've been doing this for decades, for generations. Uh, You know, I think 50 years ago, ranching was more profitable than it is today. Uh, A lot more profitable, to be be honest. But since for the last 50 years, we've basically been breaking even and still doing it because of the lifestyle. And we all love the lifestyle. You know, uh, neighbors or, you know, outsiders will look in and, and say, you know, they envy what we're doing. You know, they envy what we we get up and go do every day. Uh, you know, you talk to most ranchers about that, and they, and they, you know, they wonder why. But there again, it can be a great business. You just can't do everything like your neighbors.
0: Mm. And they envy it until it's 20 below, and you've got to go make sure right. the waters are working. And
1: yeah. yeah, earlier this week would have been... Uh, Not so enviable.
0: (laughs) Uh, Difference between reality and romance. Um, But, okay, so why, why would ranching be less profitable today than it was in, say, the 1980s?
1: Well, I'm going to back up another decade because I have more accurate figures to work with that. So I'm going to go back to 1970, which is basically 50 years ago. Fifty years ago, we could rent or buy land for one tenth what it costs today. Now, granted the inflation figured in there, it has to be figured in there. But you know, we thought land was expensive fifty years ago. It's really expensive now. You know, we have to compete with uh, recreation buyers and all sorts of other things now. You know, land's very valuable it's more valuable than what most ranchers can pay for with cows 50 years ago uh that was when i was rodeoing you know i could buy a gallon of gasoline for 25 to 35 cents a gallon can't do that anymore 50 years ago i could buy a brand new pickup for less than five thousand dollars you can't buy a new pickup for less than fifty thousand dollars today you know tractors and balers and Everything involved with ranching has got more and more and more expensive, and the profits were, or the prices we're receiving for our cattle have not gone up that much. You know, I've, I've, I've heard that uh, the cost of inputs, which would be fossil fuel inputs, it, uh, implements labor, in fact. Uh, Fifty years ago when I was working, I was making $2.50 an hour, you know. Nobody would work for 250 an hour, and I wasn't being underpaid. I thought I was being paid fair. So all of this has changed in 50 years, and yet, you know, here's my thinking. Most ranchers, I'd say 90% of cow-calf producers, ranchers, on the land are still operating just like their, their dad and their granddad did 50 years ago. Nothing's changed except for the herd quitters. You know, but I heard Twitter say, okay, we're in the, we're in a solar energy business. We're not in the farming business trying to, you know, run tractors and stuff like that. So that's a, that's a difference that why we're, it's more break-even now than it was 50 years ago.
0: Mm-hmm. Um. Okay. You've, you've said that in order for something to be, sustainable it needs to be profitable it needs to be enjoyable and as well as any other sort of component that we want to look at and if clearly it's 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 a business so if there's not return on investment if there's not profit then the business can't maintain if it's not enjoyable then there's all kinds of pressures that that puts on people right. um and all of that i um, i agree or at least i resonate with the idea that we haven't given that enough attention when we talk about this life you know we we want to enjoy this lifestyle but are we really enjoying this lifestyle or or
1: yeah. are... well here's My thoughts on that. I mean, agriculture or any business has to be profitable and enjoyable. If you hate what you're doing, there's no reason doing it. If you're not making any money, there's no reason doing it. But a lot of agriculture has reached a point where we still enjoy the lifestyle. We're just not making much profit. We can get by. Uh, You know, it's sad for me to look around. You know, I basically, I guess I could qualify as a second generation rancher. But there's a lot of people that have their third, fourth, fifth generation ranches. And those ranches have been paid for for decades. And in the last 10 years, they're borrowing against that land to stay in business. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not a a profitable business. They should never have to borrow any money to stay in business. But they are. You know, uh, I'm going to take a little different approach. The average rancher, cow-calf producer, is over 60 years of age. And I, my question is, if this is such a great business, why isn't the next generation coming back to us? Because they're not, obviously. Mm-hmm. You know, we just keep getting older and older, and a few kids slip back in. But the reason is, you know, most of these kids that watched their parents work relentlessly often with off-farm jobs in town just to break even. Mm-hmm. You know, the lifestyle is great, but they're working way too hard to break even. They said, you know, I, I I don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of those parents that, uh, you know, where they have a 40-hour-a-week job in town, now they work 40 hours on the weekend to get caught up in a, out on the farm or ranch. Well, how fun is that? You know, mm-hmm. the kids are saying, you, you know, it, that was a great place to grow up, but I'm going to go do something.
0: Mm-hmm. I've wondered about those statistics at times because of the way businesses, ha- agricultural businesses, have to be structured for tax and other estate purposes. So, how you know you you may have someone who is the the owner advancing an age with somebody else coming in, but not in the ownership. So that might skew. But clearly, when we when we go to meetings, we see the the audience that's attending, and even that can be um, a little misleading. You, in one presentation I I watched, talk about how you know third generation, so you know maybe grandpa's still there, dad's still there. They send junior to to see your you know, program and junior gets all excited or a program that you're a part of. So he sees lots of presentations, gets lots of ideas and goes back. So you, you said something about how, how quickly innovation occurs in every business, but ranching. Yeah. And
1: I'm not sure this is hundred percent true, but it's a, oh, it's a good story. Go
0: with it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> you know, in, in most industries, Innovation is accepted and put to work within 17 to 24 months. That means if, I'm, a, if uh, I'm making computers and the guy down the road is making computers and he figures out a way to make them twice as good for half the price, if I don't adapt what he's found, I'm going to go out of business. He's going to put me out of business. However, in agriculture, and let's say specifically cow-calf production, It takes 17 to 24 years for innovation to be accepted and put to use. And and I think, if anything, an old friend of mine in in North Dakota gave that to me years ago. And he called me up the other day just to touch base. I said, do you still agree with 17 to 24 years? He says, it's over 30 years. (laughs) And, And when you think about it, it's a generation.
0: Yeah, and it might, it might actually be worse, because I can't recall where, and I'm going to have to go dig it up and send you so that you have it. But the, there was someone who was talking about businesses and innovation, and if he couldn't turn it, this idea, from inception to implementation within, and it was less than a year. As a, a, and I'm thinking nothing in agriculture can sit in that time frame if you're talking about perennial Probably. grass or – you know, you can't – so by necessity, it can't be that rapid. But then you've got this herd societal thing that, that – And so to complete your story, then Junior goes home and tells his parents and grandparents about this. And then what happens?
1: Well, you you know, uh, back up a little bit. You know, it's not the young generation that is the problem. You, You know, people say, well, they're just too lazy. Well, they're too smart to work as hard as you've been working. They're not too lazy. But... You know, given the opportunity, grandpa and dad, will say, you know, maybe you ought to go see this 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 uh, meeting on, re- you know, whatever it is, different kind of agriculture. And so they send Junior over there, and and he he gets a little excited. He says, you know, this is different than what I've always been told. It can be profitable. It can be, you know, we can we can do things that I never knew we could do. So he goes home and he tells his dad and his grandpa all these great ideas, and, and they just basically says. That can't, we can't do that, you can't do that here. And who told you that? But, you know, the sad part of it is, is it really does take that long. You know, I I go to meetings and I talk about, uh, let's say, rotational grazing, where we're getting more use of solar energy, less use of fossil fuel energy. If we know how to manage our grass correctly, we can produce twice as much grass which supports twice as much cows, which makes twice as much money. And everybody in most audiences that I talk to, they've heard of this. They heard about this back in the late 1980s, which is, what, that's a uh, 40 years now. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's 30, 30, 30 uh-huh. plus years. Yeah. I said, okay, you know, how many of you are practicing what I'm talking about? The hands that go up. And then I say, because that's a type of, we're a, in a group of herd quitters at this meeting. I say, how many of you had to have a neighbor? Or what percent of your neighbors are doing what you're doing? It's almost always zero. Mm-hmm. You know, so those neighbors have been exposed to the same thing for 30 years and they don't get it. You know, it's too different. We're not going to accept it. Uh, when you really narrow it down to the, you know, the final sad point is that we advance one funeral at a time. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not going to be any, any advancing in most families until one generation passes and the next generation can take over. Unfortunately, a lot of these families don't have a next generation. I mean, we're, whether we like to think about it or not, we're, we're running out of the next generation, which allows the profitable ranchers to get bigger and bigger. Yeah. I'm, I'm okay with that. That's business.
0: Well, and, and the other. Closely related to that is, unfortunately, s- some operations wait too long to try to make change, if they ever do, and yeah. and it, it, they could have been successful had they seen the signs that were present a couple decades earlier. And now they're so deep in that it may you know it's the unrecoverable stall at that point that. Um, Uh, And and so hopefully more people hear and can see, but there is all this human nature and, you know, everybody farms on a billboard, so everybody sees what you're doing. And there there seems to be a real desire to, you know, I told you he was wrong and look at that. And well, he just learned something and you've been doing the same thing for 20 years.
1: What have you learned? But, um, Everybody wants to fit in, mm-hmm. and yet it's that guy that's on the outside doing something different. He may fail once in a while, but he's always going to excel past everybody else.
0: Mm-hmm. So you, you you are in, is it, would you describe yourself as a seed stock, or how, how would you describe your operation?
1: Uh, that would be accurate. You know, I would say we're we're. We're in the ranching business, cow calf business, but we are basically in the genetic business. And that's what a seed stock producer is. He produces seed to help other ranchers. So, seed stock, genetics. Uh, you know, we started back in the, as I said, back in the, the late 80s and realized, you know, here's several things that we can do different than our neighbors and make more money. And probably the third thing, you know, making better use of the sun. Uh, the second one, first one would be making better use of the sun through your grass production. Second one is calving in sync with nature, which, especially after you've been through a week of 20 below temperatures and your neighbors are calving, you know, that's inhumane. Mm-hmm. That, that, you know, there's no other way to put it. That's inhumane to calve in the wintertime. You know, God gave you. Know, every calf is born is born with a summer hair coat. And it doesn't matter if he's born in February or June, he's got a summer hair coat. So we're, we're not designed, you know, a rip- in the beginning, nothing was designed to cab out of sync with nature or God's creation. So that was number two. And the third thing is genetics. And I said, you know, nobody's pro- producing me a bull that will take me in the right direction. So I said, you know, this is an opportunity that I need to look into. And we did. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the business, that business, the seed stock business, is we, we produce a genetics that we can sell in the form of a bull to our, our neighbors, our other ranchers, and say, you know, if you would like to have a program that's like our program, here's the genetics you need.
0: So, we, so yeah, you're, you're producing bulls that fit your cow-calf operation philosophy. Is that a fair? Right. And and so we we again uh, too many people I don't think appreciate the fact that the the animal that ends up on a rail, regardless of how it's finished, isn't the animal that the cow calf producer sells. I mean, there's some more months and some more ownership typically. I mean, some retain ownership, but so. You're getting paid on the calf that you sell, not the final sort of end of that process directly.
1: Right. The, the, the average rancher sells wean calves. You know, when those calves are six to eight, ten months of age, they take them off their mothers. And they, they either keep them for a little while, but they, they sell them to the next, next uh, whatever Phase. part of a, Yeah, the stalker's. Uh, feeder, though, you know, eventually end up being grass finished or feedlot finished and eventually end up being slaughtered and uh, sold for meat. Uh, my business is probably back a generation. So you got the seed stock producers, cow-calf producers, the stalkers, the feeders, and the processor. So I'm, I'm in the genetic business. I sell the genetics to the seed stock produ- or the cow-calf producers who produce calves and sell calves. Mm-hmm. But uh you know it, that determines a cow calf producer if they want black calves, they use black bulls. If they want, you know, short, thick calves, they use that kind of bull. You know, that's that's the genetic part of it.
0: So let let's talk about bragging rights in the cattle industry. Um it it's my impression that the cattle industry has been driven a lot by fashion over the years. Um and some of that has not worked out so well. So if you could explain why it's not a good idea to focus on increasing weaning weights for the cow-calf producer.
1: Yeah, I could spend an hour on that. But that, that's, that's where we started, you know, this increasing pounds per animal, which is weaning weight, versus increasing pounds per acre, which is, you know, what we control down here. Uh, and it's been kind of a 50-year thing since this started. We learned how we scientists have come up with the ways to major, measure, measure and predict, you know, breeding values for animals. We call them uh, expected progeny differences. So that started about 50 years ago, and it's very accurate. You know, they we we can select bulls that would increase our weaning weights, and just keep doing that, and we've done it for 50 years. And that's what we produce. And so it becomes kind of a thing, you know, when we go to the sale with our calves, you know, those who have the heaviest calves have the bragging rights. Now, they may have lost money, and most of them are losing money. But that's the bragging rights. Yeah. Now, in, 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 uh, take the other approach, the guy that says, okay, I don't care about bragging rights. I'm going to increase my pounds per acre. Pounds per acre equals profit, not bra- bragging rights. The calves individually won't be as big, but totally there's going to be more total weight. And it's usually worth more per pound.
0: So cost of production, production per acre, as opposed to production are, per individual. You're, you're only
1: half half there. It, it's, it's more of a stocking, stocking rate thing. You know, if I'm trying to increase individual weaning weights, pounds per cow, I can't have very many cows, right. and she's going to be big cows, and she's going to eat a lot. Mm-hmm. What I'd rather have is, you know, fifty percent more cows, stocking rate, producing fifty percent more calves. Now they will they will be smaller, but overall we're going to get a whole bunch more total pounds. So what's so it, an animal?
0: Rate. What's an animal unit month? I don't know. Yeah, I, it, it's what the feed for a. Thousand pound cow and her calf. Usually, they figure a
1: thousand pound cow, but the average cow yeah. <laughs> in America is over fourteen hundred pounds. Now. So, so right
0: there, there's a significant difference between what some may be planning on and the reality on the ground.
1: Yeah, you know, most most people figure a cow eats two and a half percent of her own weight every day in dry matter. So, you, you know, it doesn't take a genius. Now, this isn't one hundred percent linear. Inaccurate, but you know, a 1500 pound cow is going to eat quite a bit more than a thousand pound cow. (laughs) Yes. And she's not going to produce that much more.
0: Right. So, so when, uh, uh, what is your, do you have a target weaning weight? Or is that a meaningless sort of? No, I think
1: when you have a target weaning weight, you're you're chasing the wrong thing. Okay. I could say I want a target weaning weight of 500 pounds or 600 pounds. That's my focus. And now I lost track of what's making me money. Okay. You know, so, and I really don't have a target pounds per acre either. It's just that, uh, w- that's where we need to be looking is, you know, uh, you know, here, here I wish I could show a picture, but uh, you've probably seen my picture of the two trucks. Mm-hmm. You, you know, let's say this ranch over here can produce 50,000 pounds of calves. This ranch over here can produce 50,000 pounds of calves. Now, this ranch produces fifty thousand pounds of calves that weigh six hundred pounds. This ranch produces fifty thousand pounds of calves that weigh four hundred pounds. So there's a lot more calves in this truck, but the same total pounds. And that's about a truckload. A truckload is fifty thousand pounds. So which truck? here's six hundred pound calves, fifty thousand pounds. There's fifty thousand pound of four hundred pound calves. Which one's worth more? Year in and year out, the truck with the smaller calves is worth $15,000 to $20,000 more than the truck with the big calves. And so chasing chasing, wean weight per cow made
0: us no money. So so the price that's paid for the smaller animal per pound is higher than the price paid for the larger. Exactly. Animal. Okay. So congratulations. I've got 200 Pound heavier calves, or a hundred. I can do the math. A hundred pound heavier calves, but you've gotten less money for them. You've also you've also experienced cost because of the feed requirements for the mother. You've also experienced an opportunity cost because if they're bigger cows, there's fewer of them that you can run on a given amount of resource. Right.
1: Wow. And, and that, that's where we get the bragging rights. You know, we think if I can have bigger calves than my neighbor, obviously I'm more profitable. Nobody's, very few people have actually sat down and said, well, that doesn't even make sense. Why are we doing it? So and that's why I said stocking rate affects profitability more than anything else. If I can run 50% more cows on the same acres, I'm gonna make a whole lot more money. And as
0: as long as that calf, that, that 500 pound animal has the growth potential to produce what the customer ultimately wants in terms of carcass quality, size.
1: Right, we, we still have to fit the inbox. The now we may be at the smaller end of the inbox, the inbox is at the packing plant, Okay. they box the meat out and send it to the stores. You know, you know we can't uh, produce cows the size of dogs because nobody wants cows that beef that size. Oh, but we can produce different sized cows and have a home for it. You know, there's been a lot of talk out there, you know, but with 14 1,500 pound cows and steers that are killing at sixteen to 1,700 pound, you know, What size steaks are we getting? We don't have farm boys that can eat that much meat anymore. <laughs> you know, we're so- working on it. <laughs> well, I mean, we, we can try to eat it, but uh, there's, there's but the, no market sense yeah, it, the market doesn't,
0: yeah. Uh, the market will penalize it,
1: and that's you know, part of the industry thinks they're making more money by doing that, but they aren't so.
0: Mama, Mama makes you money twice at two occasions, right? When you sell her, or when you sell her calf, is that right?
1: Yeah, I guess. I, I, I mean, she's either gonna she's gonna make me money every year, one way or the other. I mean, she's producing okay. a calf, or if she didn't produce a calf. I'll just send her to calf mm-hmm. and, and take take the money. But, uh, yeah, you, you know, we, we expect a cow to be a cow. And that's another tragedy is that we've got cows so big. The industry does. I don't. Industry has cows so big they don't fit any environment. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a great thing. But it, it, I never would have thought this until I started asking our customers. But I can sell our low-growth bulls. These bulls are not grown, been bred and developed for growth. I can sell that to customers that have been using high growth bulls, and we get bigger calves with low growth bulls. And the reason is, is because calves out of our bulls fit that environment. They're not struggling to make the, their maintenance requirements. You know, calves aren't going to grow until he meets his maintenance requirements. And, and make, most of the cattle today have maintenance requirements too high. You know, it just takes too much feed for them to get there. And then growth comes slow after that. Whereas ours are, you know, they're low maintenance cattle. They meet their maintenance requirements, then they start growing. Yeah. But uh, you know, that's been a huge benefit to our program. You know, if I can tell people, you, you use our smaller bulls, and you'll get the same size calf or bigger. He'll just be, he'll just look a little different. Mm. He won't be so tall and leggy. Leggy's going to be thicker.
0: And, and of course, one of the penalties to having maternal cattle that don't fit the environment is they're going to be less fertile in that environment without supplemental feed and right. the expense.
1: Yeah, and fertility for a rancher is number one. Uh, you know, you, you want that cow to get bred every year and to raise you a calf every year. That's, that's important. It's just become, as, as you mentioned, you know, we have to feed those big cows extra to get them bred, to, to have a calf. And uh, that's just taken away from the profits again. It's a, we, we've got ourselves in a, in a cycle that we can't stop as an industry until we basically say, hold on, I'm going to back up. I'm going I'm to take a different approach. And that's where I see that the most profitable ranchers I know of, they're herd quitters. So, and they're very profitable. They're you know they're they're able to buy buy land that nobody else is thinks is affordable. Mm. So
0: you, um, I've I've heard different statistics, and you may have something, but um, something on the order of three quarters of the average cost of a cow calf operation is feed costs.
1: Yeah, I think it's kind of always been this way for a long time. 70 percent, I think it's 70 percent of my cost of production to produce produce a calf is for feed to feed that cow. Basically, you know, and let me look at this. 70 percent of my expenses is for, for feed, and then I'll look at it a different way. Only 30% of what I pay for feed actually goes into production. 70% is just to maintain the cow. Mm. And I believe on a bigger cow, you know, it just takes more and more and more. So we've got to meet the maintenance requirements, the survival requirements, and then we can start growing a cow or getting bread.
0: So uh, uh, I think I remember in one of your presentations, you talking about um, milking um, traits are another thing that can be selected for through these expected progeny differences. And people have assumed that increasing that would increase weaning weight and therefore profit. Um, And yet, Again, there, there's it's a lot. opposite. Okay.
1: You know, I'm going to talk about maintenance requirements again and again and again, I guess, but you it takes so much energy to maintain you where you are, maintain me where I am, maintain a cow, and you, you can't get any bigger or any fatter until you meet those requirements. You can't, uh, if you're a cow, you can't produce milk for your calf till you make your own survival requirements. You can't get bread until you've met your own re- survival and enough to feed that calf. Uh, you know, it's all about maintenance requirements. The three things that affect maintenance requirements are frame, that's height, and growth, and that's and milk. So you know, there's three things that everybody has been shooting for. We want cattle bigger. We want cattle to grow faster. We want higher milk cows so we can make bigger calves. All we've done is created an animal that's hard to stay in production. And, and, and that was, we could see that happening 35 years ago. Uh, we, t- we took a different approach and I think it's obvious that we're correct, but that's just my thing.
0: Well, uh, clearly uh, I agree with you and clearly that's because I'm perceptive and I recognize intelligence when I see it and I agree with it. So. No, but you've been doing this long enough to have data, and yeah. you know one of the lines is "In God We Trust." All others must bring data. Um, I don't think we in this branch of agriculture have used the data that's been available um, without having a lot of filters in between our eyes and the page, and. I I I think that that's hurt us over time.
1: Either that, or we use the wrong data, wrong information. You know, but that all depends on your goal. If you want to increase pounds per cow, then, you know, we've got the information that will get you there.
0: Yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah,
1: profit. We we've got the information that will get you there, but they're two different things.
0: I remember hearing one producer from Illinois, I think it was, saying, I'm going to produce three hundred bushel corn and I don't care what it costs.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. <laughs> we're exactly. we're 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 back to bragging rights and buckles and you know, if you want to wear buckles and he, and, he can do exactly what he
1: says he's gonna yes, do.
0: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um and I, I remember another conversation where I was told that cost of production is a meaningless statistic. And I looked at him and said, could you repeat that, please? And and can you think of any industry anywhere where that would be not just laughed out of the room? I mean, how... Um,
1: okay. What did he say?
0: Um, he gave me some answer about how... Because of this, that, and the other thing, it's
1: too variable, and what it's like.
0: No, hey, sorry.
1: We we like to blame outside factors for the problems we created ourselves.
0: Yeah, um, true, true. Um, I'm I'm looking over some of my notes that I made. Um, I. I <laughs> I think that the, your children are too smart to be doing what you've been doing uh, or the way you've been doing it. Oh, that's it. The, one of my lines is the most dangerous phrase in the English language is it won't work here. Um, and it, my sort of exposition on that is if you have anything to do with its implementation, you're right. Yeah. Um, and the other is we've always done it this way. That's.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah I think the, one of my favorite Henry Ford quotes is whether you think you can or think you can't, you're right. Exactly. Y- you know, you can only do what you think you can do. And some people are willing to push the limits and see what they can do. Most people are comfortable right there. Uh, and this is another sad thing that I see based on the number of people I. I'm in contact with, most people would rather fail doing what they've always done than to succeed if success requires change. Now change doesn't come until you're forced into it unless you're a little bit brighter than average. Well, and yeah,
0: I I think so that's a really good point to come back to the comfort zone. Um, bit of human nature. And I've heard someone say that there is no pain in change, but there is a tremendous amount of pain associated with the resistance to change. And, you know, the the since the 80s, we had the change. We had input costs rising and the product costs or price remaining relatively Constant or in constant dollars, maybe even going down. And that was a signal for change that too many have resisted for too long. And it creates all this pain. Yep. Um, But you're, so you talk about boxes. And, and we, we talked about the, the end box that goes to the grocery store, but we're not hopefully talking about that. We, we, this sort of philosophical yeah. or or um, other kinds of boxes. Well, we... I,
1: I talk about the box that I put myself in. You know, this is my worldview. And I nobody put me there but me. You know, I view the world based around the paradigm that I'm sitting in. And uh, you could call it a comfort zone. You know, I've been in this comfort zone for 50 years. I really don't want to step out and see what else is going on. And that's what most people think. You know, I would say for some reason, I was built a little different. I mean, I at a very young age, I started looking outside my box and challenging what anybody else was doing. And as you know, Peter, you know, I, I, I challenge the status quo and everything. You know, whether it's in academics and business and re- religion or politics you know the status quo has to be challenged otherwise there's there's no progress we we remain the same and you can't remain the same the world moves on whether you're dragging your feet or not mm-hmm. and uh, I think it was Jim garrish
0: who talked about a lot of people they think they're breaking out of the box but they just They leap from one box to another and now think, oh, okay, I've broken out of the box. Well, you're in a new box. And how much of that previous experience have you brought with you? Because not everything there needed to be discarded, hopefully. And so we don't progress necessarily by saying, oh, okay, look, I'm I'm, I'm free of that old box, but here I am in, in this one.
1: Yeah, I think we have to, and it comes easy for me, I don't know why, but we have to constantly be looking outside the box. You know, is there, am I missing something? And if you never look outside the box, you'll never know what you are missing or might be missing. But uh, yeah, that's a good, you know, I've probably heard Jim say something similar to that too. But you know, as long as we, again, I think that's your comfort zone. You know, I don't want to I don't want to feel like I'm dangling out there uncontrollable. So I'm going to control things, and that's not a safe place to be because the world's going to change every day, every week. Something's changing, and we've got to be trying to keep up with it or ahead of it. And, And some of
0: my heroes from the human health side of the Ruminati tribe are people who have had to do that in their profession which you know now you've got a whole nother layer of discomfort to add on top of that um and and to hear a human being say i was wrong is so remarkable in a human being that we should just like applaud and encourage them because i think that's model behavior um but like you say we have too many knee-jerk reactions to attack that and yeah. Um, so uh, I I want to I want to I'll be leveraging your herd quitter to some of these other people that it's been my pleasure to know. Um, so as I said before, we met now a decade ago almost. It wasn't in February that I was in northeast Nebraska. I know that it was more like September, as I recall. Um, mm-hmm.
1: And we've anyway, met uh, several times since then.
0: Yes, yes, um, so over the last decade have you sensed some positive changes or what, what's your perspective at this point?
1: You know, I, I have, uh, I, I, I've been I've spe- been asked to give speaking uh, presentations since 1994. I mean, as soon as the world started hearing these crazy ideas. started putting me on the stage and and boy i got arrow shot at me and i you know i i was the stupidest guy they'd ever seen and that did not really go away until you know maybe 15 years ago and gradually people are accepting what i'm saying and even universities which you know i've I've antagonized a lot of universities because they've been leading us in the wrong way but there's a lot of university people Know that the same thing I know, and it's it. There's a gradual change there, but as soon as the universities jump over and say, you know, what he's saying makes sense, then more and more people are are doing that. Uh, I called it last uh, last spring, you know, prior to our bull sales, because I we get to talk to a lot of people, and most of them that call us are status quo, doing things the way Dad always did. And I I noticed that most of the people I was talking to uh, were 45 and and younger and ready to get off the old horse that's about to fall over dead and get on a new horse. And and that was huge. We saw that through our spring sales. Uh, I I would say that we've seen more change or the desire to change in the last year than we've seen in 10 years. Altogether, 10 years, it's, it's it is coming, and some of it's coming because it has to happen, and some of it's coming because they finally get it, and uh, you know they don't want to keep doing what they've been doing because that's not working. And and you mentioned it earlier, you know, when somebody says I was wrong, and that's that's the biggest thing that keeps us from changing. You know, if, if I if I've been doing the same thing for thirty years, and all of a sudden I realize. What I was doing for thirty years wasn't right. That, that's hard to change. You know, it's almost easier to keep doing what I know is wrong than to say I was wrong. And uh, you know, that's a. Uh, but people can do that. You, you know, you have to in order to make any paradigm shift. You've got to admit that that paradigm I was in wasn't working. Mm-hmm. And but I spent so I've invested so much of my life doing what didn't work that I hate to change. Well, and also, I mean,
0: if it's a generational operation, even if they're not, you know, if the parents or grandparents aren't involved anymore, it still feels like, you know, that you're judging them. And the point ought to be made is they were doing things appropriate for their time. And now you get to do things appropriate in your time. Mm-hmm. And the goal is the preservation of this enterprise, which regardless of what grandpa would have thought about how you're doing it, would have appreciated that you're doing right. it. Um, so like you say, what's your goal and and what are you know just some metrics of progress rather than Confusing metrics with goals, I guess, would yeah.
1: be. Um, and you know, the most ranches and farms are family businesses. You, you know that's uh, that's just the way it is, and so it's it's sad to see a family business go down. And Grandpa would never have wanted that. I mean, Grandpa would want you to be doing whatever it takes to keep it going the right direction. And uh, you know, I I talk about in my weekly newsletters and my or updates and my newsletters I talk about the next generation you know there are places where the next generation cannot wait to be involved because it's working you know whereas in most places the next generation they're they're really not excited about working so hard for nothing
0: yeah um indeed so you mentioned your newsletter um can can people who are not in agriculture but are interested in maybe hearing one of your presentations or reading what you put out in your newsletter? uh,
1: How would people do that? Uh, I send out weekly emails. I send out what I call a PCC update, which is about business and ranching. Sometimes I slip into politics and other stuff I shouldn't. I also send out a, a weekly devotion and then we mail out quarterly newsletters. Now, I think uh, newsletters go out to 20,000 people. The emails go out to around fifteen or 16,000 people. And I would venture to say that a fourth to one-third of those subscribers are not ranchers. Okay. I mean, they like what we're saying. They, they like to know what's going on in our industry. But if people want to sign up for any of that, they can go to our website, uh, fairocattle.com, fairocattle.com, uh, there's a sign-up sheet there, and you can sign up for whatever you want to sign up for. And uh, when you get tired of it, you just unsubscribe.
0: Perfect. And I'll put links in the show notes. Um, so, uh, again, Kit, thank you for sharing time and, and your thoughts and information. Um, it's only fair, since I've been asking you a bunch of questions, to to offer you the opportunity to ask me any, if you have any.
1: Yeah, you worked my brain pretty hard this afternoon. I think I'm just going to leave it right where it's at. <laughs> Excellent. I, I appreciate what you're doing, you know, for people, for industries, for agriculture. And, you know, that's uh, the more we can bring people to the right understanding and more people succeed, you know, that, that's possible. It's not going to happen
0: if nobody gets involved. Indeed. Um, I look forward to the next time we can actually be in the same space. Um, I have had the pleasure of being at several of your bull sales and and giving presentations in in sales rings, which is entirely appropriate. Um, Not always in sales rings, but sometimes. Yeah. Um, but let's wait until the temperature's a little above uh, freezing. I think that would be better.
1: Yep, this won't last.
0: No, it won't. No, absolutely.
1: Kit, thank you so much. Thank you, Peter.